Your father gave me this sword. Changed the pommel from a bear to a wolf. But it's still Longclaw. Look, man, a moment. Thought you'd never come back to Westeros. But you are back. And it's been in your family for centuries. It's not right for me to have it. He gave it to you. I'm not his son. I brought shame into my house. I broke my father's heart. I forfeited the right to claim this soul. It's yours. It serve you well. And your children after you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen, and I haven't read most of the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson. I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Welcome to the show, everyone. What we do here on this podcast is we recap every episode of HBO's Game of Thrones. And we don't spoil anything from future week's episodes that includes anything on the next time on preview that includes anything from the books. You can find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Uh, also find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Facebook.com slash acastofkings or on Twitter at acastofkings. Uh, and this week we are going to be discussing Season 7, Episode 6, Beyond the Wall. This episode was directed by Alan Taylor and written by Benioff and Weiss. Now, Jonah Robinson, before we dive into this week's episode, I mean, typically what we do here on this podcast is we go scene by scene through the episode and talk about each scene and the motivations and speculate on what might come. Uh, and perhaps you provide some context from the books. Uh, you know, and I think that's a lot of why people tune in. But today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're not going to do a scene-by-scene breakdown today. Uh, we're going to change up the structure a little bit. We're going to talk more thematically about the show. Uh, why are we doing this today, John Robinson? Well, you know, um, if you're listening to this and you're active online, you may have already noticed that this was kind of a divisive episode. A lot of people in the fandom quite hated it. This is this was an extra long episode, a very visually and action-packed, ambitious episode. Uh, but there were a lot of people who really hated it. This is just factually true. And then there were a lot of people who really loved it because of all the dragons and everything and, and maybe some of the human interaction too. Uh, because it is such a controversial episode, we sort of wanted to structure this around a lot of your feedback and discussing it that way rather than doing like a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown and maybe uh, as Dave and I both are guilty of some Sometimes getting bogged down in the nitpicking. So we want to take sort of like a broader look, though we will pick some nits from time to time. So here yeah. we go. We'll pick, we'll pick a bunch of nits, I would say. So all that said, Joanna, uh, we, we have a lot of stuff to talk about today. But before we do that, can we just share our overall thoughts on the episode? Yours and my overall thoughts. Like, how did you rank this episode uh, in your estimation? Yeah, uh, this was one of my least favorite episodes of Game of Thrones, 
for sure. Uh, but that being said, since it was 71 minutes long, I think something like that, uh, there were still a lot of things that I loved. So, um, yeah, we're going to talk about some inconsistencies within, within the show, but I guess to find something really positive to lash onto and everyone listening is probably already rolling their eyes, but, uh, you know, my love for Jorah Mormont is strong and true. And I thought this was an excellent episode for Jorah, who was just Jorah a showcase. He was just like on top of everything in this episode. He was just great. And he didn't fall off a dragon, which is has pluses and minuses. We'll get to later. Um, But yeah, so, so not, not my favorite, but some, some, uh, some positives that we can find as well. Yeah. uh, There's several things I liked about this episode. Uh, It's a gorgeously, shot episode it looks amazing uh, a lot of the visual effects are very very impressive uh they shot i think uh, you know i saw the uh the breakdown uh they did like a documentary they posted on youtube and on hbo go um but they shot it in iceland and belfast i think like they shot in those yeah. two locations and they somehow got them to match which is incredible like it's an incredible feat so it is it's an amazing looking episode. Uh, lots of scenes of these dudes uh, hiking through incredible vistas. So cinematography is, is spectacular. And it does, I, it does have a very shocking moment in, in the history of Game of Thrones. You know, uh, the death of one of Danny's dragons, Viserion, is uh, truly tragic. And I feel like the way it plays out on screen uh, is largely worthy of that tragedy. Um, so there, there is some some high points to this episode. But overall, I would say uh, this is definitely in my lowest, you know, I was talking about last week as being like one of my least five favorite episodes. This is definitely in the, you know, low tier. Um, And not only that, but like really crystallized a lot of my disappointments with what's going on this season. I mean, uh, it, it has in some ways broken me, like broken my brain (laughs) in terms of my, like, because, because think about it. Two episodes ago, Johanna, I was saying best episode of television of all time. You know, like I remember. Is, I, I yeah. can't believe how good this show is. Oh my god! Like, th- like thank the gods that we're this manna from heaven <laughs> that's just raining down upon us. Right. Uh, and I'm I, I've gone from that to y- you know seriously questioning whether I believe in the competency of the people, the storytellers behind the show, and uh, that is just like very deep whiplash that's just difficult for anyone to go through. like the, the the mind contortions it takes to try and and reconcile those two viewpoints uh, is challenging so before we got into today's themes just wanted to kind of acknowledge up top what our thoughts were on uh, on the episode anything else you want to say up top joanna yeah, just really quickly to loop back to you talking about them matching Belfast to Iceland. Yeah. Um, Rory McCann gave the, one, of me, one of my all-time favorite Game of Thrones interviews ever to the Sydney Morning Herald that I sort of exert, excerpted over on Vanity Fair. So you can either read it at the source or on VF. But uh, he talked about how, since it wasn't actually snowing in Belfast where they were shooting, uh, he was like, guys were just feeding shredded paper into these like big swamp fans basically at all times and shooting them at the us and he was like they were so loud that we couldn't hear each other so basically we were just like lip reading and eating paper the whole time (laughs) i was like that's an amazing description of of this sort of like epic uh episode so yeah incredible yeah I, i mean i would recommend watching the the documentary explaining 
what happened this episode and how they made it because uh, regardless of your thoughts on the episode, it is really, really impressive. So uh, anyway, let's dive into the emails uh, today and we're going to talk about a variety of themes through emails that uh, you folks have sent to a cast of kings at gmail.com. So to start with, let's start with Zach from California, who writes in to castofkings.gmail.com. Long-time listener, first-time writer, all-time fan. Going into Season 7 of what is still my favorite show on television, I had the highest of hopes. Seven episodes, then six episodes, then we're done. At first, this just oozed confidence to me. They knew what they were doing, but now with only one episode to go until next year, I'm afraid I was right. They knew exactly what they were doing, it just wasn't very fulfilling. We've all observed how fast the story is moving now, and many are arguing that this is efficiency over impatience. After this episode, I can't agree. Am I really expected to believe in this John and Danny love story? Is this insane, globe-hopping, really effective storytelling? Can characters actually start and finish conversations instead of just recapping at each other? And yet, I still find myself clapping, laughing, and shooting my fists in the air like Sir Steve of Household. I'm still <laughs> enjoying it. It's a thrill. But why do I feel so empty inside? Is this a clashing of fanboy optimism versus well-read cynicism? Do I want the show to be good? Is it good? Is anything good? I was trying to articulate my strange feeling to my friends, and I believe I came up with an analogy that is keeping me grounded and sane. Game of Thrones is popcorn that used to be steak. I'm going to repeat that again. Game of Thrones is popcorn that used to be steak. I thought about going with hamburger versus prime rib, but calling it a burger is too much credit. A burger can be quite filling. Popcorn, not so much. This show used to be steak. I used to savor it. It was dripping with nuance and spices, and every bite fulfilled me. I've read the books twice, seen most of the seasons roughly four to five times, and have been inspired to write more of my own work. But this season, with its mind-blowing special effects and all-star team-ups and record-breaking action scenes, it tastes different. It's great at first, but after, I'm not sated. I used to, be, uh, I, I used to still be chewing, but now it's just being shoveled into my gullet at a mind-blowing <laughs> speed and just making a big old expensive mess. And next season, I can't help but expect more of the same, and I'm a little sad. I'd be curious to hear what you think. Do you agree? Is there still some steak left to come? Or should I just accept the generous popcorn and wait for the last two books? Thanks for your insight. Uh, that comes from Zach from North Hollywood, California. Uh, someone someone in the chat room, uh, Mama's like one, two, three, just said, but is it cinnamon sugar popcorn? You know, we have this uh, theater in Seattle called the Cinerama that has chocolate-covered popcorn. Oh, it man. It smells and tastes amazing it's incredible That's, that sounds incredible yeah it's, it is it is good and and so you know i i, I think the the analogy is imperfect because um especially if you're on a low carb diet like me popcorn can actually be quite filling but um other than that i think it's a pretty spot on analogy i mean we wanted to start by talking about what we felt george r, r. martin's work brought to this tv show right joanna yeah, so this is sort of like um, a different spin on like not – well, we we definitely want to talk about sort of where we feel it's gone kind of popcorn-shaped. But nice. also remembering what it was that made it steak in the first place. And I think I was I, – no, I know I was definitely guilty of a few seasons ago – I would be kind of dismissive of some of George R. R. Martin's later books, specifically Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons. And I'm not saying those books don't have their flaws because they do, but something that I've really come to respect in George since, um, you know, we've we've gotten to where we have in the show is the meticulous world building that he does, the way he plots out things so logically and thematically, and um, 
I, I know a lot of longtime fans of the books know that there's something I think that George himself likes to refer to as the Miranese knot, which is like he put Daenerys in Marine and then he didn't know how to get her out of there. But he couldn't just airlift her out of there the way that I feel like the show might do now in season seven. So he ha- so like these are the problems that keep George like not publishing books for years and years and years. This is what he's trying to deal with. He's set up all these sort of things for himself, but that's why he often delivers steak. Maybe not always prime rip, but like steak. And then Weiss and Benioff, I have a lot of sympathy for Weiss and Benioff actually, because they started this project as a project of adaptation. They're like, let's adapt this book series that we like so much. And, um, maybe they should have seen it coming. I don't know, but, but now they're no longer, able to do that. And now they have to sort of basically George R. R. Martin laid out, um, uh, kind of bullet points that they have to hit to the end. They know how he plans to end it with certain bullet points. Like Hodor's death last season was one of those, but they're having to be creators, not adapters. That's a different muscle. That's a different skill set. And, um, well, not, yeah, not only creators, but creators with really specific constraints, right? Yes. That they, mm-hmm. you, you have to hit these marks and whatever you do between them, uh, it's up to you. That's, that is a very challenging situation to be in, I would say. Yeah, right. exactly. Like, yeah, you have to reach a certain end goal. You can't make any decision you want. And then you don't have the benefit of George's, like, eight years that he spends trying to think about how to get all those characters up to to north of the wall if that's something he wants to do they're like mm, let's do it in the span of one episode you know it's like it's i i right. am so, so i am george, sympathetic george r. r martin uh you know was invo- like involved in earlier seasons of the show he actually even wrote a few episodes right um yeah. but uh, and obviously they had the uh the source material text to refer to but this season uh, they've basically been on their own. The showrunners have been on their own. Is that right? Yeah. I don't think Martin's been involved in a serious way since I want to say season four. It might even be season three. But like mm. it's it's been a long while. And um, and the other thing I want to say about Weiss and Benioff is you and I used to go back and forth in the early seasons of this podcast where we would talk about um, – I'd be like, well, this is different from the book, so I don't like it. And you're like, well, Joanna, it worked really well. I don't. I think you're crazy. And and I want to like sort of go back and agree with you and say there are certain adaptive changes that Weiss and Benioff made. Like my favorite example when I talk about this is um, season two when they put they matched Tywin with Arya, and there are all those great Tywin Arya scenes. That's completely show invention. Mm. That's that's killer adaptation. So they did yeah. a great job with that. I remember well, when we did our season one rewatch, we talked about many of the, the shortcuts that they took right. in the show that, that were quite advantageous. And I, I mean, I, that's not even mentioning the greatest show invention of all time, the character of Ollie, which we know is like not only, you know, symbolically, you know, a beautiful character, but also like functioned in the plot in a big way, right? Uh <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. You just had to go there. I had to. I had to. But fast forward to now when they're having to put the bones of this uh, season together. And I just – I really think that they don't – they are not able to match what George was able to do, both like in intricacy of world building, uh, consistency of logic. Like if George puts a rule down, that's a rule. And Weiss and Betty off – like my my example from this episode – 
to to pick a nit early on is that when we first met Beric Dondarrion, Beric Dondarrion and Thoros of Mir in season three, the way that Beric Dondarrion lights his sword is it's like a ritual where Thoros says all these words and then Beric slices his hand open and uses his own blood to light his sword. That's how the flaming sword happens in season three. In this episode, both Thoros and Beric just light up their swords like they're lightsabers. And that's just like Weiss and Benioff changing the rules for expediency. And it looks so cool. It looks so cool. It looks cool in the trailer. It looks cool in the episode. Everyone's like, fuck yeah, flaming swords. And I agree. But that's a really good example, I think, of like George thought long and hard about the rules of a flaming sword. And in the early seasons, they're like, all right, George, we'll do it your way. And now they're like, you know what? Now the now the swords just flame on. And that's fine. Do you know? So um, <laughs> he's so like human. He's like human torch from Fantastic Four. Just flame exactly. on, and it's all good, right. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and and every cinematic example of the human torch has been a great one. So um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, does does that make sense? And the other the other thing, of course, that that we want to talk about, which sort of leads us into our well i don't know is there anything more you want to say about sort of i mean I think, I think so i've read a bunch of uh recaps and analysis of this week's episode and i think a lot of people keep referring to uh season one of the show and the execution of ned stark you know as a, 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 an event that exemplified what made this show so amazing i mean you know, I was not a book reader. We we actually, you know, Cast of Kings was just a glimmer in our eyes at that moment, you know, when that happened, Joanna. Um, but the the way the show was set up and marketed with the, uh, you know, Sean Bean as the lead and just to kill that character off like so early on, such a mind-blowing uh, event, you know, such a mind-blowing development in the story – uh, and and it not only was a, a bold decision, but it made you realize no one is safe in this world, right? Yeah. And, and over th- over time, they would kill off many many people, right? Right, and that's I mean that's a great sort of transition to the next theme we want to talk about, which is death on Game of Thrones, and specifically in this episode, a lot of people, including me, are irritated that seven heroes went north of the wall and six came back. Uh, seven heroes in like. Three red shirts? I think it's five red shirts. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, five red shirts that, um, you know, and that's, that's another thing I could say. In Hard Home, which is like, it's it's inevitable to compare this to Hard Home, the episode from season five, because this is a clash between Jon Snow and the Night King. There's whites, there's white walkers, there's wildlings. Like, this is, this is very much like them being like, we're going to give you another Hard Home, only bigger and louder and um, uncut. But the... Um, what Hardhome did with, with only, I think it's like 30 minutes of the episode, maybe 20. Like if you watch the episode Hardhome, the actual battle's really only 20 to 30 minutes of that episode versus 70 minutes of this episode is they give you these um, side characters to care about. Like Carsey, played by Birgit Hort Sorensen. There's a Then uh, that's where we met the giant one, one, like all this sort of stuff like that. So you've got these other characters that you care about here in this mission, we've got seven heroes that we care about, but then these freaking red shirts that, and uh, you know, this is my issue with, with the direction. We'll talk more about the direction later, but like, I really miss Miguel Sapochnik who directed hard home in this episode because I don't feel like he would have let people be confused that there even were red shirt wildlings there, which a lot of people were. Right. 
Do you know? Like there was never an establishing shot of them. They never had a line. They were just there to die so our heroes could live. And that's, to me, especially based on what we talked about with Jamie and Braun a couple episodes ago, surviving this clash with Daenerys and the, t- and the dragon, like that is really counter to what Game of Thrones established itself as, which George R. R. Martin wrote in his original 1993 outline, which is anyone could die at any moment. Right. Right. Uh, let me say a, f- a few words on that. Yes. Okay. So yes, please uh, for those who don't know, red shirts are the characters in Star Trek who would beam down on an away mission uh, and they'd be wearing a red shirt, which uh, noted their uh, status as like a security officer. Uh, and they would be the one that died. So it'd be like Kirk, McCoy and Spock and then a guy in a red shirt and then, like the joke is like the red shirt always dies. So in this episode there's uh, the seven dudes that, whose names we know and then a few people that we're referring to re- as red shirts because um, we never learn their names and they're going to die. I mean, I, mean I, I, I think a few things. You know, the way that the, the red shirts were introduced was very bad. Like you don't see any of their faces. They're not introduced. You don't know any of their names. Uh, and as you point out in Hard Home, we actually learned some of the uh, extras or background artist names. And we, there was one who was like putting their, her daughter into a boat, you know, and, yeah. and you think to yourself, oh, I hope, I hope she's okay, you know. And, and even that brief moment, the, the, the episode took a moment to slow down and to, to show you, hey, the, the, these are people here. They're not just uh, zombie fodder. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. Now, so so I will say the way it was executed in the episode is bad, full stop. Side note, uh, there has been some conversation this week about hats, right? And uh, why Hood. don't the characters in Game of Thrones wear hats, right? Or Yeah, or hoods. Uh, yeah. Or hoods, right? Um, and, and, you know, Joanna, please, like, if I'm uh, summarizing this incorrectly, you know, step in. But I, I think... Uh, uh, they are in incredibly sub-zero conditions. Why wouldn't they wear hats or hoods? The decision was made, hey, uh, we don't want you to wear hats or hoods because if you're all wearing this very, fairly similar-looking outerwear, it's going to be very difficult to tell them apart, right? So, okay, yeah. I, my, I'm thinking to myself, this is, a, this is an answer that Kit Harrington, who plays Jon Snow, gave in an interview. And so I'm thinking oh, to myself, yeah. okay, well, okay, that makes sense. Uh, I, you know, uh, it, I, I look at you and I'm freezing just because it looks like it's really cold. I would put on a hat. But hey, if you say it's to make things more clear, I appreciate that as a viewer. Then we get this episode where uh, some people are wearing hoods. I think the red shirt characters are wearing hoods so that when people die, like it's a situation where they had these seven characters. They didn't want to kill off too many of them. But they needed some people to die. Otherwise, you wouldn't feel like there's any danger. Right. And so they just killed off these nameless, faceless people that you, you never really get to know. And that's very disappointing. You know, like it's just poorly done action. Especially since all of them died. All the red shirts died. <laughs> all the red shirts died. Yeah. And there was like a weird shot where like John actually kind of knocks one off. Like because he's like tries to stop the white that's attacking one. And sort of like by killing him sort of pushes this this red shirt off the rock that they're standing on. And he goes into sort of the the crowd of zombies as they devour him and like some blood geysers up. And it's this weird like, oh, no, there he goes. 
that guy. <laughs> that, that dude that we don't know who he is. <laughs> but yeah, all the red shirts were wearing hoods. Gendry had a hood and everyone else was hoodless. And I think they were like, okay, one of our like stars can have a hood, especially since we're going to make him run through the night later on. Um, and then the rest, you need to see their hair. So you know, who's who at any given point. And I like, I'm actually, I'm fine with that. Like I'm, I would rather have clarity of who these characters are than um, like, you know, practical outerwear. Right. Um, that being that being said, like you know, some people in our chat room are like, "Well, just because everyone can die, does it automatically make a good storytelling if they do die?" No, not necessarily at all. But what I'll say is, when you have stuff like um, Tormund being like impossibly buried in zombies and being dragged down into like sort of a like a break in the ice. Uh, Jorah dangling off the side of a dragon or Jon Snow freaking drowning <laughs> and then they're fine. That's bad storytelling. If, if you are going to pretend to kill people and you don't and you only kill Thoros, who bless his heart is the least important person there, except for the fact that he can resurrect people. And so when he dies, like when Thoros dies, you're like, oh shit, it's real now. No one can get resurrected. But then it's like, nope, apparently that didn't matter because everyone else is going to survive. Except, and this is where we get to the except. This is, this is the crux, I think, of whether or not this episode worked for some people. Uh, and it has nothing to do with human. All right. Okay. So I want to get to that. I want to get to this yeah. email from JM. But before I, th- I just want to say one other thing, which yeah. is that I watched the uh, you know the making of this episode, mm-hmm. and uh, during the uh, the short documentary, Benioff and Weiss uh, uh, let out that they have been trying to get uh, zombie polar bear into the show since I think season two, right? That they they this is a a, a, a set piece that they've wanted in the show since season two. They've always been turned down because it's been too much money. But this this year, uh, the VFX guys finally said yes. And I bring it up just to say I think this episode is – obviously, since I said it's one of my least favorite episodes of the whole show, I obviously think it's worse than Hard Home or Battle of the Bastards, both of which I thought were great episodes. Um, but – uh, I, I just don't know and, and certainly Miguel Sapochnik I think directed both of those episodes right and Alan mm-hmm. Taylor directed this one but I, I bring up the anecdote about the zombie polar bear just to say uh, I don't know how much we can assume about like Alan Taylor's contributions to this episode like maybe maybe um, you know he like he wanted to put more uh, red shirt background into the episode but Benioff and Weiss were like no you got to put zombie polar bear in like we got to put we got to spend at least 15 minutes on zombie polar bear you know um uh, we don't know we don't know that's all i'm saying yeah so, no we can't blame alan taylor on a script level at all absolutely i agree with you that's not his job uh it's more like i was rewatching you know on storm of spoilers we did a complete a Game of Thrones recap, uh, rewatch over the several months leading up to the premiere. And when it got to Hard Home, which is already one of my favorite episodes, I was really struck by the clarity of the action in that episode mm. um, and how Miguel Sapochnik takes time. It's true Battle of the Bastards 2, which is a, 
an episode I like less, but uh, takes time to really like there are just a lot of establishing shots of like and you always know where everyone is and what's going on. And in this episode, there are a couple things like when a red shirt goes down and like I so I was watching with my roommate and I, you know, for my like the third time I watched with her and I like to watch with her because like she's seeing it with a fresh eye and I can sort of see what a more casual watcher would, would observe. And every time a red shirt went down, she's like, Oh my God, was that Thoros? Like you couldn't tell yeah, you could, who's, uh, who's going down. So agreed. that's a lack of, lack of clarity in action. And then yeah. also the fact that they were all armed eventually with dragon glass weapons, which is true. Like Jorah has two dragon glass daggers. Tormund has a dragon glass ax. The hound has something dragon glass tipped. Even the red shirts had like dragon glass tipped spears, but that's never made clear yeah, I didn't in even, the episode. I didn't even know. Like you, you kind of, I, I made the connection because John had been mining all this dragon glass. Like, Oh, yeah. they probably have dragon glass with them, but it, no one stops and says, okay, like, let's get the dragon glass weapons out. Right. No, no one says anything like that. There's, like, one shot of Jorah pulling his the daggers out that looks, like, pretty establishing to me. But, like, Tormund switches from a regular axe to a dragon glass axe with no explanation. And that, to me, is, like, sloppy editing or directing or something like that. Yeah, anyway. No, fair, um, enough, fair enough. So, but anyway, let's, let's okay. talk about something that yes. was really effective in this episode, which is what JM writes. And please let us know where you're from if you're writing into a cast of at gmail.com jm writes in i saw the episode last night with my mother my aunt and wife all of them were devastated by the episode my wife was upset at how upset a single uh, simple tv show makes her feel my mother's refusing to watch anymore until she knows how it ends because she doesn't like feeling this sad although my aunt didn't say anything so dramatic she was also deeply saddened and neither of them even know that it was viserion that died and my mother and aunt couldn't even name drogon the only reason I wasn't right there with them was because I was spoiled earlier in the week and had some time to prepare myself emotionally. But the reason why we all felt so much is because of how we felt about Daenerys. I'll speak for myself, but to see her lose one of her dragons and suffer that way was more impactful than seeing any other member of the Magnificent Seven die other than Jon or Jorah. Then to top it off, we have the moment where Jon bends the knee because he recognizes who she truly is and what she's about. To see the person who has consistently been held up as the paragon of the true hero... Recognize Danny's own heroic nature was profoundly moving. I'd imagine that for the many people who are deeply invested in Neris's arc, this episode was anything but hollow if my own family's reaction was anything to go by. And once so, again, I will like trot out my roommate anecdotal evidence and say she was she's a fan of the books. She's deeply upset by the dragon death. I was not we'll get to that in a little bit but i know you really liked this part right dave well i don't know about liked but yeah okay. I, I, it was it was a very impactful <laughs> it was yeah it, it, to you I, I i thought the entire you know as i alluded to earlier i thought the entire uh you know last week's episode i thought the entire plot of this whole episode is absolutely ludicrous makes no sense uh in terms of any of the character motivations that we've seen thus far but there are some images that alone, with no context, uh, have the ability to kind of stun you, right? That 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 the sheer spectacle of something uh, stuns you, even even if everything that led up to that point makes absolutely no sense. And I would say the death of Viserion is is one of those images for me. Um, seeing Viserion get hit with the ice javelin by from the Night King. Um, and then kind of... By the way, P.S., postscript, really quickly, sidebar. I'm totally fine with the Nightkin being 
the best javelin thrower in all the land. Like that to me of all the nits that everyone wants to pick in these episodes. And I'm right there with you with a lot of them. That one doesn't make sense to me. Like he's the magical king of an army of ice. Sure. Yeah. He's the best at javelin. I'm fine with that. That's like, do you know what I mean? That's yeah, I, I, just to me. That's not, that is on the lowest tier of issues yeah. I had with this episode. Yeah. Um, but seeing him uh, hit, uh, Viserion, and then there's kind of this kind of mix of fire and blood that comes out, and uh, and you see Viserion slowly fall into the ice. Ooh, the drowning, yeah, yeah, and the drowning. Uh, it's tragic, and you see, you know, it's one of three of these creatures in on the entire planet, uh, and just seeing it happen visually, the way it takes place, it's stunning. It's viscerally upsetting, uh, and. I thought it was impactful despite the fact that, you know, uh, I, I thought it didn't really make sense that Viserion and Viserion, you know, why did Danny bring all three of the dragons? Like, was, was there a reason she couldn't just bring one? Like, she didn't bring all three of the dragons to the other thing last week? Anyway, I don't want to get into all that, but suffice to say, Viserion uh, was, uh, like, like that death is one I, I certainly felt. See, and so this is, this is uh, what you know, the showrunners were counting on was that the Viserion death would be the big death stakes of this episode. Um, in the behind the scenes interview, uh, DB Weiss said, um, this episode is very close to one of those battles where all the good guys get out the other side, more or less got free. But he said, killing the dragon was going to have a tremendous emotional impact because over seasons and seasons of the show, it's been emphasized what they are to Danny. And I think that shot of all the guys on the dragon behind Daenerys, it's like a panning shot that like yep. takes in all of their horrified faces. And then Jorah looking concerned at Daenerys and then Daenerys just looking heartbroken and Drogon screaming and all this sort of stuff like that. Like that is their attempt to really drive home that this is a huge loss. <clears throat> Let me just say, Joanna, I mean, uh, I thought I, I was kind of disappointed by Danny's reaction to it, you know? Um, I, I, I just thought it would be more intense. Like, I thought it would be, like, elemental pain that she's experiencing at that moment. And I mm. felt like the other dudes in that shot that you're talking about were more upset than her by it. You know, like, I did not, I did not really feel her disappointment. You know, you, you, um, we texted about this uh, before the episode re- recorded, <laughs> right? You said, you said, like, well, did, the, did Viserion's death affect you at least, David? I said, well, it affected me more than Danny. You know, I guess I just... Um, someone tweeted at us, I think it was Brian, uh, long time listener tweeted at us like, I get, uh, I get yelled at when I come home from the grocery store with the wrong kind of pasta sauce. Uh, John gets a dragon killed and he gets like a, a like barely a stern talking to. Is that uh, John's fault or is it Tyrion's fault for having this terrible idea in the first <laughs> Sure. There's, a, sure. there's a lot of blame to go around. Yeah, a lot uh, of blame to go around. Space Ghost in, the, in our chat says she's in shock, and I think that that I that's a fine reading as far as I'm concerned. And like sure. the, the the more dramatic reaction we see is her trying to keep it together when she's talking to John later on the boat. That's sort of like you know she's she's like her adrenaline is going in in the battle scene. Um, uh, though, like, I don't know if you wanted her to scream like, no, and get off her dragon and like grab a sword and go running at the Night King or something like that. I'm not nothing that cheesy, but I, I hear you about that. And I mean, really, when I texted you, I think about the death of the dragon. I don't think I said at least because the, this dragon death did not do it 
for me. And we're going to talk a little bit more about maybe some reasons why, but one reason why is like the show has made no effort to give Viserion or Rhaegal, which are the two beta dragons, like distinct personalities right, at all. Right. Like they're constantly in the background. It's always Drogon. In in fact, in the behind the scenes up, uh, interview, when Weiss was talking about this, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen these like um, inside the episode interviews they do for every single episode, but yeah. like they cut they cut together their sort of talking head interview with footage. And when he's talking about this, he's like, we've tried, we, we've done all this work over the years to show you how important those dragons are to Daenerys. And it cut to scenes of Daenerys with her dragons over the years. And it's just Drogon in every single <laughs> shot. And I'm like, yeah, if they had killed Drogon, that would have been a big deal. But a lot, most people don't even know the, uh, you know, as the emailer pointed out, it didn't matter to his family that they didn't know the name of which dragon this was that went down. But like, um, I don't know that that bothered me, but uh, you know, some people have asked if there's another reason why I wasn't that upset about it, and that actually has to do with uh, spoilers, old spoilers, not future spoilers. Uh, is there anything more you want to say about? Well, death? yeah. So Gabe Alonzo in the chat says, "I was hoping for an Alaria Sand level reaction, but I still enjoyed D- Danny Shock." <laughs> yeah. Right, and I, I, that's that's kind of what I felt too. Like, I, I guess I just felt like I was so upset. You know, like I was upset like, watching it because the, the, this is such a unique, beautiful, majestic creature just zapped out of the sky like it's nothing. And uh, I was upset. And I expected – I guess I expected Danny to be, you know, ten times more upset than me. But uh didn't happen. Didn't happen. Anyway, I think people have differing takes on whether it was an appropriate reaction all good. Uh, I, I'm watching this like looping gif of all the guys reacting and then panning over Daenerys. And I have to give like the best reaction shot uh, to Christopher Hiview who plays Torment because he's like, what the hell? I know, exactly. It's like his, his they all have bigger reactions than her, I yeah. feel. But yeah, okay. She's in shock. Uh, That's fine. Yeah. George George Casaros in the in the chat room says, Viserion is Danny's Rickon. And I really <laughs> like that comparison. Nice. Nobody nice. talks about Rickon anymore. Yeah. Uh, he's a Stark child who died last season. Apparently it was a big deal, but it wasn't. Okay. So we're going to get into talking about spoilers. One of the reasons we want to talk about this specifically for this episode is, as most of you know, this episode leaked online early. Early, thanks to um, HBO did it this time. A Spanish affiliate of HBO, yes. Also, HBO Nordic, I believe, also did it, right? Oh, they might have. They've yeah. definitely reached things in the past, but but the main, I think the the main source of the of the file that was going around everywhere was um, HBO Spain. As a result, um, some assholes <laughs> watched that episode. Uh, put up gifts and videos of the big moment of like not just Viserion going down, but like the Night King turning Viserion. Like all this stuff was just like on Twitter and on YouTube. And I know so many people who had remained unspoiled for most of the season scrolled across it um, in their timelines and uh, were really upset about it. And I actually was spoiled about this death months ago. I knew this was happening months and months and months ago. So, the question some people have had for me um, is if me knowing that it was coming means that um, I wasn't as affected as I might otherwise have been. My response to that uh, is 
not just it's, it, it's a false equivalency to say, well, I was spoiled about everything that happened in the books and it still upset me when I watched it on TV because like I was upset when I read it in the book. So like that's how I absorbed it the first time. And then watching it on TV, The Red Wedding or Ned's death or something like that or Oberyn's death, like these are things that I that I had experienced emotionally and engaged with. That's different than reading like a spoiler on Reddit. That's true. But I was also spoiled over the death of Hodor last season. And wow. that killed me. So I don't agree that being spoiled on something necessarily means that you won't be emotionally affected by it. Because Hodor just really got to me. And I I knew that that was coming. So uh, we do have an email, though, about spoilers and this particular season of Game of Thrones, which has been a very leaky, spoiled season <laughs> so far. Yeah. Yeah, I read that, Dave. And, and let's just say that you know, don't spoil things for people. Like, don't do don't, it. Don't be an asshole. You know. Yeah. Um, I, I'll just say that uh, someone attempted and failed to spoil me on something this week. Uh, just like direct message me with spoilers, and uh, it just is like a a dick move. And I I don't know like. You know, I, I guess there's something – people find some satisfaction in, like, ruining someone else's day in some way. Um, but hopefully you don't because it's just not a nice thing to do. And people should be allowed to control kind of what information they're taking in. I really believe that. Anyway, Eric writes in. Uh, Eric says uh, to a cast of kings at gmail.com, I've always been on Joanna's side when it comes to spoilers, but you finally have a new member among your ranks, David. I've never been more down on the show than I am right now. I hope they bring it back around, but I'm not optimistic. They are lost without Martin's source material. They know the end game, but they aren't creative enough to get it there in a satisfying way. As an avid book reader, I've never been worried about spoilers of the show. Due to the books, you knew everything that would happen in the first few seasons, and it never made a difference. I knew Ned Stark would die, but it still hit me like a punch in the gut. You knew the Red Wedding was going to happen, but that didn't lessen the thrill or disgust. And while it's been changing for a while now, the show still managed to deliver at times when you knew what was coming or not. The explosion of the step last year was a blast, pun intended, due to the style of it all. Cersei calmly sipping her wine, Tommen falling from the window. It worked, and knowing in advance only made you appreciate the execution that much more. But while it's been coming on for a while, this is the season that broke the spoilers back. The hits (laughs) are fewer and farther between, while the misses are piling up like the body count in episodes of old. Spoilers do ruin things now, because the show simply isn't good enough anymore to pull it off. It no longer has the time or willingness to make things count and is instead counting on the oh shit moments that are meant to shock but are never truly earned. The Danny and John romance, false and empty. The unwillingness to kill a single major character in this week's episode, spineless. Heroes stranded on an icy lake for days and a night king that can out javelin the greatest Olympic athlete. Writers block in desperation. Inconsistent characters like Sansa and those that flat out make no sense like Arya, lazy. I could go on, but I only find myself becoming more and more irritated as I go. Uh, by the way, pausing here, like me, Dave Chen, I'm like, wow, this guy is he's even more angry at the show than I am. <laughs> anyway, going back to Eric's email, please don't misunderstand. It's still a fine show, but only in comparison to all the other shows out there today. In comparison to itself, it doesn't stand a chance. So if I want to stand any chance of enjoying the rest of this ride, I suppose I need to be willing to fall for the gimmicky shocks and the hand-waving that has become more and more common as of late. Maybe if I go in blind, the zombie dragon would shock me enough that I could overlook the flaws and the rest of the show falling apart at the seams. Perhaps ignorance in this case really is bliss. So uh, that's the end of the email. Uh, Eric's basically saying, well, all this show left has left is kind of shock, shock value. Right? Like yeah. that, that before... Um, even if you knew the spoiler, 
you would still be able to get some enjoyment out of it because the build-up, the way the scenes or the developments were executed was so exceptional that you, you could still get something out of it. But now, because the show has kind of traded in a lot of that development for spectacle, like all it has left is the shocks. Um, and as someone who is perpetually spoiled in things, Joanna, it sounds like you agree with this email? Um, yeah, I guess so. Like, um, we, we talk a lot on storm of spoilers about, um, it's not about knowing what's coming. It's about execution. I think you and I talked about this last week too. And like, uh, and that's true. Like I knew the septic explosion was coming, but I thought that opening of, um, the winds of winter, which is the finale last season was breathtaking. The musical composition by Ramin Javadi, the, like uh, all the external pieces being, it was almost like a ballet. I've watched that over and over and over again. So it wasn't the shock of the sept blowing up that makes that sequence. So, uh, you know, important to me, it's ever, it's all the things working in concert. Yeah. And in this week's episode, there's a, I mean, like, come on, we can't disregard the visual challenge of dropping a dragon out of the sky and then having it drown in a way that feels like conceivable and, and you feel the weight of the dragon. Like that's all true. I'm very dazzled by the visuals of it. And, and Daenerys is a rival too. And she starts just shows up and starts torching things. But, um, I do think that the the shock of it was probably what drove it home for a lot of people. And um, I could be wrong, but that would be my guess. I don't think that's going to change my attitude towards spoilers, but, but I completely respect that he, you know, this, this emailer is not the only one. There's been a lot of, you know, our, our storm of spoilers podcast even now has a spoiler free section. Cause there's so many people now who are backing off spoilers on game of thrones. And I think this, this, email really might have gotten to the like crux of the reason why and it's kind of fascinating to me so because yeah. the episodes are yeah. extremely just plot heavy now it's all plot. yeah it's all it's all spoil it's spoilers yeah. all the way down basically right, right. yeah so like oh the, the surprise of like oh my god it's gendry or like something like that you know like that that all that stuff is not you know landing with me so um in that way so, uh, yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting to talk about, especially since so many people got spoiled on the big twist of this week's episode. So, yeah, there you go. Spoilers. All right. Well, Joanna, uh, we have one other email we've got to read. But before we do that, we, we have to spend some time talking about this episode and the plot. We're not going to do a scene by scene rundown, but we do have to talk. The, the, the episode is basically two plot lines, right? Mm-hmm. There's the Winterfell stuff and then this whole action sequence north of the wall. So let's talk about the Winterfell stuff real quick. Uh, we, we learn a little bit more about the Arya Sansa relationship. We learn how uh, masks work, right? Um, Arya keeps them in a bag. Uh, they're, made of, <laughs> they're made of silicone. Um, I think it was latex, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, you know Arya is still really – Arya is upset about this letter that she found from Littlefinger – and uh, she kind of threatens to out Sansa to everyone else. Um, so I, I think this plot line is really stupid. Uh, yeah. And I'm going to list a few reasons why. Number one, uh, um, you, you know, we have uh, seen that Arya is theoretically a uh, master of deception. So the idea that she could be deceived by Littlefinger feels very unsatisfying given like all we've we've learned about Arya up to this point. 
Um, second point is just that these two characters have been through this life transformative uh, sequence of events, you know, and, and you'd think that that would recontextualize their whole relationship and they would no longer be squabbling with each other. Uh, and the seeing them fight is just like very unsatisfying. And I, I don't know that it's completely inorganic to the characters, but uh, it feels at least slightly inorganic. Yeah, it just basically like when you when you go through difficult life threatening things, you tend to want to reaffirm your blood relations. Like that's just like I I've never gone through anything like that tragic in my life before. But I like when I've gone through challenging times, it's like okay, the first thing I want to do is call my parents and call my brother. You know, and uh, the idea that they've been through this horrible thing and you know Ari would still be wanting to kind of sabotage Sansa just feels kind, kind of ridiculous to me just from a character standpoint and then um, uh, so I, I mean let, let's start with those two things as like the reasons why I think uh, this this plot is, is kind of dumb uh, let, let me add a third one on there uh, as you pointed out earlier this episode uh, Arya was Tywin's cupbearer for a while right or yeah. like her, her his squire or whatever whatever that position was so feels like Arya doesn't really have like the high moral ground here when it comes to certainly not cozying and up to the Lannisters. It, it, here's here's the part about so so here's the thing, and I, I was already frustrated with the what I considered manufactured tension between Jon and Sansa in Winterfell, and then I but I thought when Arya got there, like I knew because I was spoiled, I knew that they'd be fighting the season, but I was like, oh, but it's going to be organic because these two have been fighting their whole lives. These are sisters who never got along and like maybe they'll come together and it'll be like oh I miss oh it's so nice to see you but then like maybe they'll fall back on old tendencies and I was like that that does seem kind of like there could be an organic way to do that but I don't think that they've done that and here's the moment in their first interaction this episode that really bothered me is like Arya is leveling all these complaints at Sansa and Sansa hits back I thought pretty um, reasonably where she's like what did you do and what did you do yeah, when father got the other would <laughs> yeah. you run the hit and run the, charge the stage and save him is that what you did um, but then Arya goes like um, you know you you portrayed all of us or something like that, you know, just so you could marry your beloved Joffrey. So Arya is still operating under the assumption that Sansa was like in love with Joffrey and wanted to marry him her whole life. And that is when Sansa could have said, Joffrey's a monster. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't see it when I was young, but Oh my God, he tortured me for years. He's a terrible human being. That's the bridge that Sansa decided not to build in that moment. And that drove me crazy because it was just like a complete, like Sansa just pivots to Battle of the Bastard and she goes, you should be on your knees thanking me because I won the Battle of the Bastards. I was like, no, no, no. That's when you address the Joffrey <laughs> thing. That's your in. That's your opportunity. But instead, these girls are just scrapping at each other. And then the mask scene, here's the one thing I will say in defense of Arya and Littlefinger. Which is something that Dave Gonzalez, who's a big Littlefinger fan over in Stormer Spoilers podcast, pointed out to me, which is Littlefinger is very wisely carrying out this scheme without actually once ever talking to Arya. He is doing all of this string pulling, like the whole like scroll thing that he left that worked on her uh, crazily, and, like everything like that. He's done without talking to her face to face. So she's really good at spotting lies as someone's talking to her. She's not talking to him. And so that's like the one concession I will give the show of like, you know, 
uh, th- that's something maybe I can believe in. But like the mask scene with Arya, where Arya goes like full blown psycho out of nowhere. I, I'm, I'm having a really hard time with it. And a lot of fans are concocting a lot of different ideas. Like maybe Sansa and Arya are putting all this on for Littlefinger's benefit or like, yeah, I, I, I would say, I would say at least 50% chance, possibly higher that, uh, Next week, we're going to find out that Arya and Sansa have been working together this whole time. And, you know, it, it was all for Littlefinger's, like, they're, they're going to, like, turn it around on Littlefinger in a big way next week. That's my guess. So. But, um, yeah, and then there's also the question of, like, Bran knows everything. <laughs> Someone <laughs> should talk to Bran. Bran's this, and we've talked about this before, but Bran is this problematic narrative device now because he like knows everything. So you have to keep him out of the way <laughs> or yeah. else he could resolve things very quickly. This anyway, is, this is the first time in the history of mankind I asked the question, where is Bran in all this? <laughs> where is but, Bran? I mean, Sansa is rightly freaked out by the fact that she found a bag of faces in Arya's room and Arya's acting like nothing, there's nothing weird about it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty bad. And then, and then what's even worse on top of all of this is this scene where like, cause you could be, you could be like, okay, Sansa's being like kind of reasonable in that, in that she's like, what is wrong with my sister? She's unhinged. Until this scene where, due to Littlefinger's influence, Sansa is like a total raging bitch to Brienne of Tarth, who saved her. Like that, oh, that made me really crazy. And and well, well, Littlefinger says, "Hey, maybe we should get Brienne to help." And then S- Sansa sends Brienne away, right? So I think there's... well, so I wrote about this a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's like confusion about like, well, if she sa- if Littlefinger <laughs> says get Brienne to help, why is Sansa sending her away, right? So so here's. I mean, Littlefinger is quite smart in that scene. If you go back to, and actually, I pointed this out at the time, and you disagreed with me, but I think I'm right. If you go back to the fight that Arya and Brienne have in the courtyard, and Arya says, "Aren't you sworn to protect both Catelyn Stark's daughter?" and Brienne goes, "I am." Sansa looks a little jealous, and then you see, if you rewatch that scene, you see Littlefinger clock that she looks a little jealous. So in this scene, he says to her, "Well, isn't?" Isn't Bran of Tarth sworn to protect both of Catelyn Stark's daughters? Like, wouldn't she be forced to intercede if something, if one of you, and like, Sansa's really worried that Brienne would take Arya's side because Brienne and Arya have a more natural bond than she and Brienne do. So when she goes to send Brienne away, it's that she wants to like remove a player from Arya's side Mm -hmm. of all of this. And in that scene, when she's being so rude to Brienne, Brienne says, Listen, I was sworn to protect both of Catelyn Stark's daughter, which is the worst thing she could have said, but she didn't know that. And that's when Sansa cuts her off and she's like, you've got a long way to go and you won't be traveling on summer roads. You better leave. So, Great um, impression. Yep. Thank you. So um, I think that's what's going on there. But what's really going on, I believe, is that the show wants Brienne at <laughs> King's Landing next week. So that she can have a scene with Jamie before the season's over. Yeah, so it's it's very disappointing how the Sansa Brienne storyline plays out. And yeah, I, I I can certainly see that retroactively, you know, what you were saying last week about uh, Sansa's concern. Like I interpreted it as Sansa just being concerned that Arya is now a trained killer, but uh, you could also certainly read it as like her being worried about the the Brienne uh, Arya relationship. Uh, so is that all we have to say about the Winterfell stuff? Like I. I it's terrible. That, I like, every, t- every time we like <laughs> cut to Winterfell now, I'm like, ugh. 
I understand you know, it's going to like probably set up that hey, all this stuff was lies. You know, like I, I, I really, I'm not saying that um, we should take everything at face value at face value here. Oh, um, but still, I think it's pretty poorly done. Okay, let's move on. Uh, so actually, with the uh, other plotline, John walking north of the wall. Uh, again, gorgeous cinematography. I actually really liked a lot of these kind of dudes on the road, their interactions with each other. Um, oh, oh yeah. Jorah trying to give the sword to John and uh, I'm oh, sorry, vice versa. versa. Yeah. And, you know, John trying to give the sword to Jorah and, and giving it back. And like, I actually was very moved by that scene. You know, it's Jorah saying, Hey, like I, I made mistakes. And I need to pay for them. And this is like one way I'm going to pay for them. So I actually really appreciate it. Like I said, that. this is one of the greatest all-time great Jorah episodes. I was hit and miss on these walk and talks. I thought some of them were really, really awkward, like uh, Gendry bitching to the Brotherhood, and there, there's some really awkward ones. But the Hound and Tormund talking about Brienne was like an all-time great uh, interaction, I thought. Um, and then also later when um, Thoros is dying and Jorah is talking to him, I thought that was really, really well done, too. But there's a there was a lot of inorganic um, recapping. This is how we know each other stuff going <laughs> uh-huh. on that they've been struggling with all season, and they've admitted like Brian Cogman, you know, an executive producer and writer on the show, sort of admitted in a couple of interviews that like it's really hard. Like like uh, for example, the scene a couple of weeks ago when Theon arrives at Dragonstone and sees John for the first time, and you need to have some kind of like. We know each other, but we don't want to be like, so last time I saw you was here. And oh, yeah, I was here. And this is what happened. And I'm mad at you because of this. And oh, I forgive you because of this. And I think whoa, that whoa, was. Joanna, I just you know closed my eyes and I thought I was listening to Game of Thrones for a second just now. You were like Alfie <laughs> Allen and Kit Harrington are yep. in the house. So like, but that was really economically done, right? You know, he's like, Theon just goes like, I've already gushed about this. But he's just like, John, how's Sansa? You know, and then John's like, I should kill you for what you did. But because of Sansa, you get a pass. The end. Like, that's that's how that went. These walk and talk, some of them in this episode were like, last time you had me, you sold me to Melisandre. Oh, and then she stripped off my clothes and did this. And that's what happened here. You know, it's like it's re- it's a recap and it's uh, not great. Not great, Bob. But um, some of them, like I said, uh, Hound and Torment talking about Brienne. Killer. So good. They get attacked by zombie polar bear uh, at some point in the episode. Just wanted to comment real quickly on this. Like, I didn't think it was a bad scene. It was, it was okay, but I think the problem is that uh, we have just seen, you know, in in the world of popular culture, uh, a, a superlative bear attack. Right? I mean, if anyone has seen The Revenant with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, like that's all I could think about was how much better that scene was than zombie bol- polar bear on fire. In the in the show, in a blizzard, uh, and it's hard because he like kills a red shirt with right, Denny's exactly. Thoros, and it's unclear. What is clear is that the Hound is still afraid of fire, and that's not an arc that gets any kind of movement in this episode. He's still afraid of fire by the end of the episode, um, but Thoros gets mauled pretty badly. Yeah, so. I, I guess I just feel like uh, if you haven't seen the Revenant, you know, have you seen the Revenant by the way, Joanna? I sure have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has. One of the most traumatic bear maulings uh, ever put to film. 
this this episode of Game of Thrones is basically like think about it like if you were trying to release like a World War II movie, you know, uh, a year after Saving Private Ryan, right? I mean, yes, there might still be some positives about the war movie, like in terms of the authenticity or the filmmaking, but you're not going to match Saving Private Ryan, uh, and I feel like that's kind of what happened here is. I just kept thinking about like how much better and more visceral and more effective the Revenant bear attack, which, which you know, it's probably not super fair, but the whatever the case, whatever uh, pop culture context led to my interpretation of this scene, it didn't leave much of an impression on me. Um, but moving on, we have this big attack uh, with you know all these zombies that uh, well, actually no, before they need to actually get the white. That's kind of what. The whole purpose of this thing is. And Alan Seppenwall wrote something I thought was very astute about this scene, which is they kill one of the, uh, not Night Kings, the uh, White Walkers, right? They kill one of the White Walkers, and all the Whites disintegrate except one, right? Mm -hmm. That's what happens. And then later on in the episode, they say, oh, well, maybe killing the White Walker, like you kill all the people that turned him. But uh, the problem is that when you're watching a show like this, you want to not be aware of the puppeteer pulling the strings. You want to not see the seams of the show. You want to just be taken into this world. And when they kill a White Walker and all the Whites die except for one, conveniently the only one that they're going to take with them, uh, it feels like you're seeing the strings being pulled. It feels like, okay, couldn't, couldn't they have had like three survive and then they needed to kill two of them? You know, I'm like, any way to make it less obvious that we're just driving towards this one white that you're going to take home on this dragon. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Um, so problems like that galore throughout the entire episode. Um, but that was one of them. They get isolated on this island in the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, I mean, I, I could mention a couple things like like the, the White Walkers, they all start, or I should say the Whites, they all start like, attacking them but then like they start sinking into the ice so then they're like okay we got to hang back we got to hang back um i I mean i have some questions about that have some questions about that like uh in hard home we saw that the whites were able to kind of form a a wall you know why not just keep throwing uh whites into the water until you have like a white bridge that you can use um why not just send you know five whites at a time and why you don't you don't all like all five thousand of you don't need to attack at once it all just felt extremely like not only was the situation manufactured that got these characters into this stupid situation, but like the 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 set piece itself felt like extremely manufactured. Like Right. So basically what they needed is a, a stalling tactic so that they could like be there for a while so that Danny could like have time that Gendry could have time to run back to Eastwatch. Right. Send a raven and Danny could have time to fly out there. And and uh, Weiss has said as much, right? That like they wanted something to happen where they were like that the army, you know, basically they were on high ground somewhere and the army of the dead was around them. So they came up with this lake idea. Is that the worst idea I've ever seen? Like in the movie Tremors, <laughs> this almost exact same thing happens. Actually, also in, in the book, uh, the the girl with all the gifts, a similar thing happens. No. Um, but in the movie, Tremors mo- is a perfect analogy for this. No, no but mean- in the, no, but in the movie, Tre- I was actually going to bring up Tremors earlier in the movie Tremors, <laughs> which maybe these like space worms are smarter than zombies, but like um, that 
when they're stranded on high ground, our heroes, Kevin Bacon et al., the worms keep trying things to get to them and failing. They keep trying. And so I would have loved to, like, maybe if the whole ice lake had collapsed in so you had much more water between, uh, you know, here I am writing fan fiction, but, like, something where it's not just, like, the army of the dead standing there or the Night King with his javelins and his deadly aim just standing there and not right. taking L- out A lot of people in the heroes. chat room saying, like, why doesn't the Night King just javelin the yeah. dudes to death, you know? Yeah. So, so, uh, so I, I, appreciate, I appreciate it's a difficult situation from a storytelling perspective. Like, they have these goals they want to accomplish, and... It's difficult. It's difficult to think up a situation where, okay, how do we get Daenerys and the dragons to the north? How, how do we do that? You know, like it, it's it's difficult. I don't think they did well, a good job. You know? I have I, I have a solution, and I'm certainly not the first person to come with, up with it. And it's this: instead of having the whole thing where like Gendry has to run and send a raven and wait overnight, et cetera, et cetera, like why not just have Daenerys, like who's anxiously worried at home anyway because both Jorah and Jon are up north and she cares about both of them. Why don't we have her just like change her mind and get on her dragons like a little bit after they've already started? So she's on her way. So she arrives just in time. I mean, because like it, we're all calling this Deus Ex Dragon when they show up, but it's not quite that because we know she's coming. Like Gendry sent a raven. She got on her dragons. She and her dragons are coming. So this wasn't like a Knights of the Vale surprise situation. So why not just have her come of her own volition because she's like so upset and worried about her new crush and her loyal friend knight amazing human being jorah mormont um and come save them all and then you don't have to like make gendry run all through the night well or, i like, like how they said you know you have to go because you're the fastest has it been introduced that gendry is the fastest until this point someone came someone told me that the math on this is that Gendry's the youngest i guess he's the youngest so yes so he by has default, longer longer legs than short john snow um has no beard to like have wind resistance drag him down and all that rowing is really good for cardio so that's why Gendry's the fastest okay sure uh it's <laughs> it's like again it's the le- one of the least problematic things about the episode so sure. uh so Gendry said he runs back uh here's another thing that was weird uh, uh Davos says get the maester does Eastwatch have a maester Joanna yeah oh it does okay all right. Well, I mean, every outpost should have a maester, which gotcha. is why Castle Black should have a maester, which is why Ed should have sent a raven many episodes ago saying, Bran is coming. Be on the lookout, Sansa. Anyway, I digress. Yes. Um, so, yes, every, every outpost should have a maester. I mean, like, Eastwatch was abandoned. The wildlings went there, but I guess they drummed up a maester from somewhere. I guess we know now why Davos went to the wall. Davos went to the wall. Like, why is Davos there at all? He's there so that he can intercept Gendry, I guess. Um. So, yeah, so there's some models there. I will say, though, I was genu- I thought it was genuinely thrilling when Daenerys rode up and started torching zombies. Right. She starts torching zombies and then kind of lands on the platform and, you know, Jorgon's just chilling there for a while while Jon's fighting off whites. And, uh, and then, you know, once a Viserion is killed, it's like, hey, we got to go. We got to go. Uh, Daenerys takes off without Jon. They give you the head fake that John is going to die, and at this point, it's just it's irritating. I would say, you know, that yep. they're 
pretending like, oh, so-and-so might be in danger. Jamie might be dead. John might be dead. Um, But no, uh, with no explanation whatsoever, second week in a row, someone's emerged from uh, like almost certain death in, you know, treacherous waters, uh, virtually completely unscathed. Uh, But the insult to our intelligence would not stop there, Joanna. Because uh, uh, Benjen, uh, Benjen X Machina, as a lot of people have dubbed it, uh, Cold Hands come comes riding in, uh, twirling like a torch thingy. It's a flail, flail, a fiery flail, yeah. And in a Titanic, you know, Kate Winslet, Leonardo DiCaprio on that piece of door on that there driftwood. There isn't any time. He's Dave. like, there is no time, and and, and like. You can make a situation. You can you can shoot a scene where that's plausible. You know, you can shoot a scene where Benjamin comes in and he's like, "You got to go. There's no time." This was not that scene. Um, Benjamin had put tons of distance between him and like the, the two of them and the White Walkers and yep. the Whites. And it, it, here's, it just here's what the line should have been. <laughs> He won't hold us both. Whether or not that's true, <laughs> it's a so better. So you're saying they should have gone more Titanic. They should have said, like, the horse won't carry us both. If, like, what if Benjamin Benjamin gets John on the horse and John's like, "Come with me," and if Benjamin goes, he won't hold us both. Slaps the ass of the horse. The horse runs off, and then Benjamin's just like taken down. I mean. Once again, I'm writing fan fiction, but like there isn't any time when I was watching the behind the scenes interview, David Benioff is like, so Benjamin rides up and he like has, you know, he has to like immediately identify himself to John. So he takes down his mask because there isn't any time. I was like, you can't just keep saying there isn't any time and make it true because it's just just not true anyway again, again you could you could definitely film it in such a way that it was true you know you could you could film it like yeah. oh the, the whites are descending on them and like benjamin has to hold them off or else they'll both be like there's a way to do it so that it's actually plausible uh but it wasn't done so so i think like and, and we get you know we're getting to the the real reason why like this episode was so distasteful to me is not only is the setup completely preposterous but uh, the way that it plays out is, is equally ludicrous. Do you know? Like, it, it's one thing if okay, the setup is is terrible, but okay, at least everything that happens in this ep- in this episode makes logical sense. Um, but it's not even it's not even at that level of uh, of you know storytelling, and I think that's just very unfortunate. You know, um, so yeah. And before we get on to the the last bit, the last chapter of the episode, we yep. should say that like there is this fan theory. I don't know if it's true, (laughs) but there's this fan theory that the Night King, like the reason why so much of what is odd happened uh, is because the Night, this this was like an elaborate trap that the Night King laid to get himself a dragon because he has the sight like Bran. And then you just like, that's why the army of the dead like waited all night on the edge of a lake. He was stalling to get Daenerys there. That's why later in the episode he has chains ready because he knew the dragon was coming because he has a sight. So this is like a big dragon trap for uh, the Night King. Um, I don't know if that's true. Uh, it would be great if it were because it might explain four or five things. Um, but here's another thing I'll say. Viserion goes down. 
Drogon rides off with Daenerys and, and the guys, Jorah almost falls off. He should have died. I love Jorah so much, but he should have died. This is another like Tormund being dragged down. Like this is really a place for a death. Um, and, uh, and then Rhaegal, the third dragon disappears. You do not see him again for the rest of the episode. Yeah. I don't know if he was like, screw you guys. I'm going home to Dragonstone. My brother just died. It's really traumatic. I'm out. I don't know what, but they were just like, you know what? Dragon budget back down to one, just back down to Drogon by Rhaegal. You're done. So, um, yeah. And then we get, uh, sort of the goodbyes between, you know, Tormund and Beric and the Hound. The Hound is like the official designated white carrier. Uh, and once again, if you read that interview with Rory McCann, he actually really fucked up his knee carrying that guy on his back for days and days and days at a time. Um, Daenerys is waiting, hoping to see uh, that John will have rescued himself somehow. Uh, it seemed to me that she had sent Drogon out sort of like scanning uh, the woods for him. John shows up somehow not dead of hypothermia. I don't know how. I don't know how he got out of that lake at all. Um, see, they're on. That was see. That was another thing that like. Okay, we should we should not tell people how to grieve, Joanna. Okay, uh, like let's just put. I'm gonna put that out there. Like, you you know this whole like Pat Oswalt thing like that happened recently where like the internet got mad that Pat Oswalt like engaged with someone else got, yeah. got engaged like you know within two years of his wife dying and like. Mm-hmm. We should not tell people how to grieve. People have their own forms of grief, like how dare you for intruding on their private lives. That being said, Danny's a fictional character, so I feel fine doing so. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, dude, uh, at first, you know, one could, like, I I thought maybe she's still upset about Viserion, one of her children dying. No, she's just waiting for Jon to come out of nowhere. This dude she met five minutes ago. Anyway, sorry. Um, something that someone in the chat room, uh, let me not get the name wrong. It's like Matt Homp one, two, three, four, five says the chains are actually another part I had no problem with. After seeing screenshots, they were attached to a chain ferry left rotting on the lake. We see when Viserion first dies. Uh, I have also seen these screenshots. I have seen this so-called ferry. There is a structure there. Let me tell you this right now. We saw how big that lake was. There's no way <laughs> it would require that much chain, that much thick chain <laughs> to, uh, like, pull, you know, have pull have a ferry pull across that lake when it's unfrozen. Also, since the whites can't swim, who affixed the chain to the submerged dragon? Like, there's a lot of chain questions that we have. Right. And once again, like, this is, a, this is a thing that, like, I know for a fact the writers um, – Game of Thrones, like, because they've reacted to things like this before, they're probably really super exasperated that everyone's fixated on the chains. They're like, are you kidding me? We killed a dragon. We did all this shit. And all you guys can talk about is chains. But, like, it's just, it's a, when there's a logic gap showing in your show, audiences will see it. It's not that um, audiences are just crazy nitpickers, because, of course, we are. But, like, it's it's a flaw in the writing. It's not a flaw in the audience. Uh, it's a flaw in the writing if you need to study screenshots closely to figure out maybe some like vague reason why the chains might be there. That's a flaw in the writing. Um, but we can move from the rotting boat in this frozen lake to the boat headed back to Dragonstone. Right, and, or- and so ultimately the question this is this is when the rubber meets the road on the Danny John relationship. 
And my question for you is, you know, we've seen them flirt. We've seen them kind of stare at each other and asking each other to bend the knee. Like, this is the scene where it's put to the test. Has enough character development been done on this relationship for you to buy it? And my question for you, Joanna, is do you buy this relationship? Um... I don't, I like I really I really hated the whole Danny thing. I like Right. Like John has never heard anyone call her no, Danny. Like why would The he... only person who's ever called her that is Viserys, which she says in that scene and he's been dead for like 5 seasons now. John like I guess John was trying a thing, but like if he was going to try a thing, he should have said Daenerys, which he, I don't think he's ever called her. He's called her Your Grace, but he's never called her right. Daenerys, so he could have just said that. Like uh the Danny thing is hard. They're trying <laughs> I I do like I've said before I do kind of like their chemistry on screen maybe not so much in this scene but uh in previous scenes like the your favorite cave painting scene or even the throne room scene like I do think that Amelia Clark and Kit Arrington work together uh, you know, and, and I think that Rose Leslie and Kit Harrington, Egret and Jon Snow had uh, about as much time to sort of like lay track for their relationship. Um, yeah, so I, I think I, I think I do buy it. I do. It's just hard because it has so much destiny hanging over it. You know, these mm. two big damn heroes, a song of ice, Jon Snow and fire, Daenerys Targaryen sort of coming together. Um, you know, that being said, Alan Taylor gave an interview to Business Insider where he said when he shot, um, didn't he shoot Baylor in the first season? I think that's right. Um, he, George R. R. Martin told him that the whole thing was about John and Neris and, <laughs> and Alan Taylor at the time was like, wait, I thought this was about like Rob Stark and Tyrion Lannister. And he's like, yeah, no, it's about John and Danny. So like, this is what it's all been leading to. No matter like what happens, this is where we're going. But, uh, I'd like to think that Martin will get there in the better way than this stupid Danny stuff. Um, but John does just offer to bend the knee. So there you go. Um, John, John bends the knee to Daenerys Targaryen. Uh, and, and what I would love, um, is if this were some sort of like disaster, disastrous decision, um, like Rob Stark and Talisa, you right. know what I mean? Uh, and maybe it will be, we haven't, we, we don't well, know how it's all well, going to play out. Because theoretically, John was saying like, my people will never accept you. Right. And so earlier maybe- and, and this week's episode, he's like, they'll come to see you for who you are. And what if he's just wrong? <laughs> You yeah, know, like that that so, would actually be interesting. Yeah, you know? but, yeah. But the show, yeah, the show feels like it's so attached to these characters, Danny and John specifically. Like, you never feel like they're in danger, especially since, as you pointed out, like John has come back from the dead. I don't know. We'll we'll see. Maybe it could do something interesting. In, in terms of my answer to that question of whether I buy this relationship, yeah, kind kind of, you know, kind yeah, of, kind of. I, I don't think of. I don't think it's like. Uh, I don't think they have no chemistry with each other. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think it's like an insult to our intelligence like so much of the last couple of episodes have been. But it's not something where I'm, I'm not shipping it. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm not like, oh, man, I hope these two get together. Like, it's well, not quite at that level yet. And a lot of people are. A lot of people are really into it. Yeah. Really into shirtless Kit Harrington holding the hand of uh, Amelia Clark. That being said, um, this is the show asking people to ship uh, – 
an incestuous relationship, yeah. <laughs> which is just super interesting. Yeah. I find it really fascinating, actually, that like um, there's this incest bomb waiting to detonate in this relationship because John doesn't know who his parents are. They don't know they're related. So this they're is like falling the second in time love. you've used the term incest bomb I on the podcast. I just think it's interesting. <laughs> okay. It's a really disturbing is like, it? It phrase. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, like what, what happens when it explodes? You know, anyway. Okay. Um, so, all right. Jenna, well, this episode to... also did a lot of heavy handing hinting to Daenerys getting pregnant again. So mm, mm. that's what happens when an incest bomb explodes. Right. Because she, does she say that she, uh, can't have children right in that scene? Right. Um, she says, you know, the dragons are the only children I'll ever have. Do you understand? He said, yes. So what, some people were asking like, why did she say that? Like, was she saying, like, you know, just so you know what you're getting into, you, yeah. which would feel re- like kind of – anyway. But uh, the fact uh, – I'm holding your hand on your shirtless, but I want you to know and I want you to think about the fact that you can never have babies with me. Right. Which she it, believes. Is the, possi- is the fact that he's a Targaryen, does that kind of change the uh, fertility equation in any way, do you think? I mean, there's a lot of complicated answers to this. Basically, like, uh, when she miscarried in the first season, Miriam Azdor – in the books, not in the show, actually, but in the books, Miriam Azdor, when Khal Drogo's, like, in that, in that like – coma living vegetable sort of state she's like uh Daenerys like when will he come back to me and she says you know when like the sun rises in the east and sets in the west did I do that wrong when the sun rises in the west sets in the east uh you know blah blah blah. and then she's like when your womb quickens with another child so basically Mary Mazora says like all these impossible things including you have another baby and you're barren and so like Daenerys in the books believes she's barren she's been having a lot of unprotected sex with Daria Naharis so you would have thought that maybe she'd be pregnant by now she could be pregnant but maybe Dario's firing blanks who knows anyway i don't know i don't uh, I, there are book answers there are show answers my 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 strong sense and this is not a spoiler because i do not know this my strong sense is that daenerys targaryen is going to get pregnant with Jon snow's baby and that's going to be a problem for in, for them for incest reasons for the fact that Jon snow has like really weird hang-ups about like having bastards and bringing a child into this world with any shame around it and stuff like that. So that's my prediction. I could be completely wrong. They could all be like, this is fine. You're my nephew, but also my baby daddy. It's great. This is great. So we'll see what happens. All right. A couple other questions for you, Jana, before we wrap up today. One of them is, uh, you know, the, the last shot of this episode, very shocking. Night King turns uh, Viserion into a, night dragon or whatever uh what do we think that dragon breathes out like does he breathe ice or like blue fire like what do you what do you think there's a lot of really fun theories about this because um there is something called an ice so like a lot of people want to make a distinction between a zombie dragon and a white walker dragon right Mm -hmm. because like there's the whites which are the zombies and the white walkers and and uh, the Night King sort of laid hands on Viserion and turned its eye blues, much like he turned the baby like many seasons ago. So people think like that that makes this a White Walker dragon, not a zombie dragon. Then again, he brought something back from the dead. Like the baby was alive when he turned into a White Walker. Right. This is a dead dragon that he brought back to life. I have a lot of questions about it. Um, there's a there's a thing in the book called an ice dragon. 
uh, a creature of legend. Some people believe there's one in the wall. Some people believe there might be one below Winterfell. Uh, they have crystalline uh, wings and all this sort of stuff like that. And they breathe basically winter. George R. R. Martin also wrote a children's book called The Ice Dragon before he wrote A Song of Ice and Fire. So they breathe like um, cold flame and winter. Mm. I think it'd be really cool. I don't know the answer uh, to what will happen with Viserion, but I think it'd be really cool if it if like the flame was at least like blue, if it was cold, I think that would be really cool. Um, but the stakes, like, you know, we should address briefly the huge stake changing things that happened in this episode. Like, okay. So Daenerys only has two dragons now. Um, also, uh, the Night King has a dragon now. Uh, ho, ho, ho. Um, and also the, we find out because of the whole rules about like which white Walker you kill and what happens to all the other army of the dead. Now it has become like a one man assassination job. <laughs> it's not kill all the undead that you can. It's kill that one guy, death to Smoochie, right? Like death to the night King. Um, which makes me optimistic that if Arya gets out of this terrible plot, she's in in Winterfell, since she's the assassin, like that Arya will be super useless, y- useful in this task. I really hope so. Um, but those are those are like major um, changing of the players on the table things that happened this week. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. So as we wrap up, you know, w- how are you feeling about this week's episode and, and looking to the future? Right, next week's episode, the next season, which is only going to be six episodes, apparently possibly feature length. Uh, you know, are are you feeling like uh, last week we talked about oh, we've seen the show get itself out of like a bad situation before. Bad seasons, bad episodes, it's gotten itself out of bad things. Now that you've seen this episode, how are you feeling about that assessment? Like do you feel still very sanguine and you're like, "Hey, um, it's gotten itself out of bad situations. This is a bad situation. I'm still very optimistic for the future or uh, or something else." My hope is that I mean, yeah, I thought season five was a bad situation and they kind of turned that around. But like, my hope is that, um, you know, in terms of the bullet points that, that George R. R. Martin gave them about like the end game, my hope is that he has, he gave them a lot more about the ending, right? That they've been sort of trying to transgress a little bit of a narrative wasteland that they're going to get to a lot more information that he gave them. Cause like he told them how it all ends. So they will at least have that roadmap. And when they have that roadmap, as we talked about earlier, they're really good at executing it like the Hodor death, which was a George R. R. Martin thing. The other thing I really hope for season eight, and we can talk about this more when this whole season's over, but um, someone mentioned in this chat room that I had said this and I forgot that I said this, that this season of Game of Thrones really felt like sort of the B team of directors. Um, I don't know if that, you know, like we really like what Matt Shackman did with the uh, spoils of war. Like there, there were some good, good things that happened this season, but um, I would love to see Miguel Sapochnik come back for the final season. Jack Bender, who did the door and another episode, I'd love to see him come back. Michelle McLaren would be freaking great. You know, like I really feel like they, if they bring their directorial a game in the final season, they could set themselves up. For success. What do you think? How are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, so that's a very like optimistic, charitable viewpoint, and so I, all power to you for it. I think that's great. Um, I don't feel the same way, you know. I feel like the last couple of episodes have been really shattering in terms of my faith in the show, um, and uh, I, I feel like 
just just immense amounts of disappointment. And uh, you know, there's a couple of emails, a couple of things I've read that have really given voice to this. Uh, I thought Alison Herman wrote a nice piece for The Ringer called Game of Thrones, Episode 6. The show is conventional fantasy now. Uh, and she writes here that, uh, quote, Let's start with a setup for that battle, which strained credulity even before its plot-serving purpose became nakedly obvious. In order to fully invest in a conflict, it's necessary to understand and believe in what's at stake for both sides. That's what made the spoils of war such remarkable television. Not the spectacle of the fighting, but our sympathy for the combatants and comprehension of the circumstances that put them at odds. Beyond the wall goes the opposite direction. I don't believe that bringing away to Cersei would persuade her to lend her, uh, her support to John. I don't believe Danny would be so casual about her prospective ally and love interest, turning to her direct competition for help. And most importantly, I don't believe so many people would uncritically accept this convoluted scheme as a good idea. Before the credits even began, I was immediately less engaged with the events of Beyond the Wall than I have been with other Thrones face-offs, largely because the story was conspicuously short on the internal logic Thrones prides itself on, end quote. Um, totally agree with every, every word of that. Just the setup was... Did I... Uh, yep, go ahead. Did I read this like super long, boring Tolkien quote on last week's podcast? I don't think so. Okay, it's George R. R. Martin talking about Tolkien. This is why I am optimistic because I agree uh, with this email that you just read. But I'm optimistic about George's potential planned ending because a lot of people are like, oh, even in the books, George is going to like swing it. So the good guys start winning. That's all I want to see now is the good guys winning. I've had enough death and destruction. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. That's just not what George is ever going to deliver to you. That's not who he's ever been. Right. So he has this quote where he's talking about uh, in, in an interview with Rolling Stone, he talked about uh, Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> Which he loves. But he has a critique with it. He says, um, ruling is hard. This is maybe my answer to Tolkien, whom, as much as I admire him, I do quibble with. Lord of the Rings had a very medieval philosophy that if the king was a good man, the land would prosper. We look at real history and it's not that simple. Tolkien can say that Aragorn became king and reigned for 100 years and he was wise and good. But Tolkien didn't ask the question, what was Aragorn's tax policy? Did he maintain a standing army? What did he do in times of flood and famine? What about all those orcs? By the end of the war, Sauron is gone. But all the orcs aren't. They're in the mountains. Did Aragorn pursue a policy of systematic genocide and kill them? Even the little baby orcs and their little orc cradles? The war that Tolkien wrote about was a war for the fate of civilization and the future of humanity, and that's become the template. I'm not sure that it's a good template, though. The Tolkien model led to generations of fantasy writers to produce these endless series of dark lords and their evil minions who are all very ugly and wear black clothes, but the vast majority of wars throughout history are not like that. So that just like that is what I'm clinging to in terms of optimism that the final season is not going to be six episodes of all the good guys fighting ice zombies and then it ends the last shot is the death of the night king and they all lived happily ever after that is i feel so strongly that that is not at all what george r, r. martin is going to do i really want to believe that weiss and benioff will heed martin's plan as much as they are privy to it and so that does make me optimistic for the final season that we're going to get something more complicated um it's a they took a clumsy route to get there. This, these last couple seasons, I think, were a little clumsy. But if all the players are in place by season eight and they have some info from Martin on how to do it, then I'm hopeful that that email that you just read 
that it won't pan out like that in season eight. Um, yeah. that was, I Al- Alison be... Herman's piece at the Ringer. Uh, not oh, anymore. sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Alison, Alison, who's a great writer and very thoughtful on Game of Thrones. Sorry about that. Um, uh, I, I'm yeah. I guess I'm. I just I, yeah, yeah, I yeah. choose I, to hope again. Yeah, I think that's and 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 I encourage you to to keep the fire of that hope alive on this podcast, <laughs> Joanna. Yeah, because I think you are the one primarily holding it right now. Uh, I'll, I'll read one last excerpt of an email from Jacob from Missoula, Montana, um, who writes in about like episode five, how this show quote kept breaking the worlds of reality. A character I grew to love for his cleverness and cunning in Tyrion came up with the dumbest plan I've ever heard. A character I admired for her strong will in Daenerys began to fall head over heels in love for the naive Jon Snow. And a character that I thought I'd already given up on in Arya managed to make me even more frustrated by falling completely into Littlefinger's trap. Um, You see, when you show us Jaime can escape no matter what trouble he's in simply because it's more convenient, you stop worrying about Jaime's safety. When you hatch a plan for the sake of a plot that is completely against the character's built-up strengths... You stop thinking the character has anything to do with deciding the story's plot. In short, I feel HBO's Game of Thrones has committed the ultimate sin. They've sacrificed the authenticity of their world for flashy visual effects and gimmicks. End quote. Yeah. I don't know what's going on with Tyrion. I can't defend that at all. Um... But, but ultimately, like, what I feel you're, – you're right. Maybe the show's going to turn around. Um, but I, I just feel kind of like a profound sense of tragedy um, because – this is going to be the only bite of the apple that creators will have at this particular story, you know, uh, for, for a very long time. Like, I, I felt this way when I watched The Dark Tower in theaters or when I watched The Last Airbender in theaters, you know, that, <laughs> uh, no, that, that like, hey, the, there is not going to be a Last Airbender movie for at least another decade, right? And when I watch that movie and, and this is what it is and it's awful and like the, they had one shot at getting it onto screen for a really long time, and this is what the result is. D- ditto the Dark Tower. Although you know there might be a good TV show based on that, we'll see. Um, but th- there's not going to be a Game of Thrones television show like uh, for this story. There, there might be spinoffs, but there's not going to be another Game of Thrones television show for like um, decades, you know, uh, at least. And so this is the one chance that we get to see the story told. And uh, you know, hearing you talk about it last week, Joanna. That's all I could think about when I was watching this week's episode was about how um, it seems like Ben Affleck and Weiss are just done. They they do like, feel that way. It's it does incre- feel that way. And, and to be fair, this show is incredibly taxing to make. You know, it's so difficult to fly around all these different countries and spend all this money, and you have all these extras and stunt people, and um, you're dealing with like. Uh, hundreds of horses and the shit that comes out of like literally the shit that comes out of them and i understand why that would be exhausting and tiring and why you'd no longer want to do that like totally human emotion to be tired of that um but it it does feel like hey this is the one chance you have of bringing this story to life and they are fucking it up in a big way this season i mean here's what i'll say is like i agree with you about the taxing of it all but like What's crazy to me about that, and I agree, it does feel like Weiss and Benioff are done and want to be done, and I am sympathetic to that. But, like, this week's episode, they feel – it feels like they're like, oh, this is what the people want. We're going to give the people what they want, which is just a big fight, zombies, dragons, yes, spectacle, yes, this is what people want, their popcorn. Um, When, like – and all the logistics and all the pain in the ass that goes with that – 
on their product on the production side but like what i would urge they're not listening to this they'll never listen to this in a million years but what i would urge them to do for season eight and i know i think they've already completed the scripts but like give us more people talking in rooms man like that's what i want it's easier for you guys to do or maybe it's harder because you have to do like really good dialogue in theory but like like give me people talking in rooms that's what i want more of you can i know there will still be zombies and stuff and dragons but um and also and by by all reports they plan to do this take your freaking time doing season eight as far as i'm concerned like they have talked about maybe not premiering until 2019 i'm fine with that take all the time you need to make this the best it can possibly be if you need a like six month break to go to mazatlan to like get your mojo back do that i don't care but like i agree with you dave like this is their shot and like no matter what happens with george and his books this is the ending that so many people are going to remember. This is the most popular show on television. It's huge. It's unstoppable. Like we are in the home stretch. People are not going to like stop watching it for the most part. Like everyone's going to watch it till the end. And, um, I, I, I would love for them to get it right. I really, really would. So, right. Yeah. But yeah, like this is the only chance that people will have to see the story on the screen. I hope they take it seriously and like flaming, you know, flaming zombie polar bears and stupid white zombie plans, notwithstanding like that, they'll, they'll write the ship for season eight and, uh, and we'll all go home, like really satisfied with the story. I I, I do hope that, but I'm not optimistic about it right now. Stockton Ellis, Ellis Fong in our chat room says too bad. They're starting production soon, which is true. I mean, Nicola Costawaldo, I believe said in an interview that they're starting in October. Um, but that doesn't mean like just because they're starting production doesn't mean, you know, take your time with production. That's all I'm saying. So indeed. All right. Thanks so much to all the people who wrote in, uh, your emails were great and certainly helped me process a lot of what happened in this episode. Um, again, you can always write into a cast of Kings at gmail.com. Facebook.com slash Kings or at Kings on Twitter is where you can find us. Um, we'll be back next week with uh, our thoughts on the season finale of uh, Game of Thrones. And I do want to point out that uh, we'll also be back in a couple weeks after uh, the season finale. We'll have like um, a bonus mailbag episode in a couple weeks. Um, and we were fortunate enough to have a sponsor for that episode uh, to make it happen. So... Uh, like just because next week's over doesn't mean that you know Cast of Kings is over, uh, so you have that to look forward to. But uh, in the meantime, John Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, you can find me on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can hear me talking about all the spoilers that are spoiling your shocking surprises over on the Storm of Spoilers podcast. Find all my stuff at DaveChen.net. I'm on Twitter at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S K Y. I host another podcast called The Slash Filmcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.